The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I have a <coughs> topic chosen for today, but I haven't been able to figure out how to start the talk. So I'll just plunge right in. Um, the topic is going to be on judging yourself and judging others. Hmm. <laughs> and the message of the talk is going to be, it's not always bad. There are times when it's, you have to judge yourself and have to judge others. And the question is how to do it skillfully. Um, I understand there's a type of heart operation where they stop your heart for a minute and then plug you in and give you a shock to get everything in your system working right again. And in many ways the whole issue of judging has to be addressed in the same way. Because many of us, especially here in the West, have many different value systems that we judge ourselves against. And of course the value systems tend to be in conflict and that leaves us in a lot of conflict. You, know, you turn right and you're wrong, you turn left and you're wrong, you don't do anything and you're wrong. Um, and the judging self tends to turn on itself and wound itself. So that kind of judging you have to learn how to get past. And this is why we have the teachings on radical acceptance, equanimity, patience, to let you step back from that kind of judgment for a while. In a way it's kind of like the rites of passage they have in, in some old cultures where they would take young adults out, and you're not really an adult yet, and then they take you out and they throw you out in the wilderness for a while. And you come back and you have a sense of who you are and what you want in life. You've decided, you've sort of been able to sort through the message you've, you picked up from your society, you've picked up from other people, and decide which ones you really believe and which ones you don't. Once you've decided that you have a set that you believe, okay, then that's the set that you really want to judge yourself against. And this is where judgment becomes skillful. Part of the problem that we have, I think, with the idea of judging is the image in the mind is of a judge sitting way up on a bench um, passing final judgment on what you've done or what other people have done. So it's safe claiming to have the final word. And that's not really enough, uh, a useful image and it's certainly not the image that the Buddha uses. When he's teaching his son how to deal with mistakes, he tells him first, you know, Try to act on skillful intentions, and skillful intentions mean intentions where you're not planning to harm yourself, you're not planning to harm other people. Then as you're acting on those intentions, you may, may notice that you're actually causing some harm, in which case he says, stop doing what you're doing. Or if you're doing something and you don't see any harm, you continue with it, but then afterwards you realize that you actually did harm somebody, you harmed yourself, you harmed other people. Um, <clears throat> He says, learn to recognize that fact and go talk it over with someone else. Get some ideas about how you might avoid that mistake in the future and then continue the practice. If you find that you didn't harm anybody, okay, take joy in the fact that you didn't cause any harm and allow that joy to give more energy to your practice. Um, what I think is interesting here is when the Buddha is talking to his son, he's not saying, don't make mistakes. He's saying, this is how you recognize a mistake, and this is how you learn from it. So he teaches you the integrity to recognize mis mistakes and the desire to learn from them, and also learn the ability to talk things over with other people. When you feel that you've made a mistake that you can't talk over with other people, it goes inside and it starts to fester. And that certainly is not going to be a helpful place to 
an attitude to have. So the, I, the, the role of judge here should be more like someone playing the piano or practicing the piano. You're practicing the piano, you listen to yourself. How's it going? It's going too slow, too fast? Are you, are there, is the rhythm right? Or is the phrasing right? Um, and you see if something's not going right, you can go back and correct. So the judging here is judging a work in progress. I think this is one of the reasons why we call it practice. You're not, you're not expected to get it perfect the first time around. And you're going to be learning from your mistakes. That's how you grow as a pianist, and that's how you grow as a person. It's this willingness to learn from mistakes. I think this is one of the problems we have in our education system, is that we tend to channel people very early. I just found out from Gil that his son took a test at the end of second grade as to whether or not they're going into a magnet school. Now, that's way too early. Um, and you start channeling kids into areas where they're already good, and you don't teach them how to deal with you know, subjects where they're not very good, which is probably the most important lesson you can get. You know, okay, where you're already talented, it's great. You're going to feel, you know, find it easy to pursue that particular area. Um, but it's also important to learn how to tackle something where you're not naturally talented and learn how to overcome that lack of talent learn how to deal with it and actually become skilled. There was a book I read several years back, it's called The Craftsman, which said that basically the problem with modern culture is that we don't learn crafts. There's a lot of maturity that comes from learning how to master craft, like carpentry or metalworking or cooking or any of these other areas that are skills, either athletics, music, or physical skills, because you learn a lot of maturity about how to judge your actions and how to learn from your mistakes. And so this is how we grow in the practice, though, is by learning from the mistakes and having a mature attitude toward them, holding in mind that the set of values which are that we don't want to harm ourselves, we don't want to harm anyone else. We want our actions to be skillful, which by their definition is skillful actions are those that lead to long-term welfare and happiness, both for yourself and for the people around you. As for other sets of values that, you, that might be imposed on you, you have to learn how to step back from that. And this is where the issue of judging other people comes in. Because you're, the people you hang around with are the people you're going to be picking up your values from. And so you have to be very careful in who you hang around. I mean, there are a lot of people that you hang around with that you're, you, know, you have to hang around with. But when the, people talk, when the Buddha talks about, well, he doesn't use the word hanging around, he uses the word associating. <laughs> Or as someone said yesterday, I'm just here to hang. Um, that's, that wasn't what my generation was taught. <laughs> hang out. Um, but, but for him, the word associating, I say what I mean, is that, that you actually partake of that person. It's the word, uh, you basically almost like you're eating the other person. And the, the pe people that you're eating the ones that you, are the ones basically that you go to to open your heart to, the ones that you look, look to for counsel, that you look to for advice, the people you admire, the people you emulate. And these you have to be very careful about who, who you're going to hang around with. Um, and again, it's not that you're passing judgment on them. The Buddha once said that the sign of a fool is you don't know what is your business and what's not your business. And it's certainly not your business to pass final judgment on other people. But it is your business to decide, well, who, are these people healthy for me to hang around? Are these people are going to have good influence on me. Um, and that you have to be very careful about. The Buddha gives a couple of guidelines for people you know, to avoid at all costs. And the first one is a person who has, shows no gratitude. 
Is that the sign of a person who does not appreciate what is skillful and what's not, what is good and what's not? That's not the kind of person you want to hang around. Um, I remember years ago, <coughs> when I was staying in Thailand, there was a house that was down in front of the monastery. <coughs> and it was close enough so that we could hear them yelling at each other. Um, and it was a family that liked to yell at one another quite a lot. Quite a lot. I learned an awful lot of Thai... Um, <laughs> Thai insults. Because <laughs> my, my hut was down at that corner of the monastery. I was right near the house. Um, well, there was one... <clears throat> I'll tell you the full story, and then I'll tell you the, the point that's actually relevant to the, the talk tonight. I was on my alms round one morning, and the father of the house tended to sit under the house. You know, how Thai houses are, they're up on stilts. And he was sitting on kind of a large table down below the house. And he and his wife had been married for many years, and they, you know, four years or five years prior to that, they'd had an unexpected son. And so it was the unexpected son that morning who was putting food in my bowl. And the father apparently had been drinking from early in the morning, because this, this was 6.30 when I was, came to the house for alms. He was already quite drunk. And um, he said, what are you putting food in its bowl for? It. He used the word it. What are you putting food in its bowl for? It's not a high person. And the son was looking kind of embarrassed and put food in my bowl and went back to the house. Well, two days later, the, the father had an older son from a previous marriage who came back and got into an argument with him, kicked the father downstairs, broke both of his, broke both of his legs. And from that point on, you know, they had to set up a little place for him under the house to stay because he couldn't climb up and down the, down, down the, down the stairway. And his job in the morning, you know what his job was in the morning? When the monk came in front of the house, the monk's here, the monk's here, put food in his bowl. Um, but <clears throat> the part that's relevant here is that when the, when the son kicked the father downstairs and broke both of his legs, um, I learned this from my, my teacher, my teacher's immediate response was, that son is not a person you can associate with. He has no gratitude for his parents. And look what he did. He kicked his father downstairs. So that, that was his first comment, someone not to associate with. So that's the first thing you want to look for in a person. Do they show gratitude? The second one, the Buddha said, is if someone tells a lie, a deliberate lie, and feels no shame about it, that's the sort of person you cannot associate with. Because that's the sort of person he says, there is no evil that that person will not do. Because if they feel no shame about telling a lie, they can just do all kinds of other things. So those would be two qualities you want to look for. That, okay, these are people to avoid at all costs. On the other side, though, the Buddha says there are qualities you want to look for in people that you're going to partake of, people that you're going to draw sustenance from. One list of four qualities that qualify someone as a noble friend. First quality is conviction. This means conviction in the principle of action, that what you do is going to have results. Skillful actions lead to happiness, unskillful actions lead to suffering. Um, and you believe that your actions really do have an impact and you really are responsible for your actions. Okay. That's the kind of person you want to associate with. Second quality you want to look for in a person is that the person is virtuous, that they try their best not to harm other beings. Third quality is generosity, that they're happy to share. And then the fourth quality is that the person has wisdom, discernment. This would be wisdom as to understanding the mind, wisdom as to seeing what, what it is that causes suffering, what doesn't cause suffering, and the desire to follow through with that knowledge so that you can avoid as much suffering as possible. So these are qualities you want to look for in the sort of person that you open your heart to. The person has conviction in the principle of action, they're generous, virtuous, and they have wisdom. Another series of qualities that the Buddha says to look for is a series of questions you ask about another person. 
First, does this person like to seek out wise people? Okay, if the answer is yes, then the, per the next question is, when they seek out wise people, do they actually listen to the wise people? Because <laughs> in Thailand, there are people who seek out wise people and ask lottery numbers and other things. <laughs> but do they actually listen to their dharma? Okay, second, when they actually listen to the dharma, do they really pay attention? Do they think over what they've heard? Do they ask questions? And then do they practice and learn what they've, they've come up with? The understandings they've come up with? Now, if you can say yes to all those questions, that's the kind of person you want to hang around. Another series of categories that the Buddha asked you to use as you're judging other people, and this particularly isn't choosing a teacher. You want to look at how the teacher lives. Look at the teacher's behavior. Um, and the Buddha says, don't jump to conclusions. There's a famous story in the canon where the king Basenadi is sitting with the Buddha and conversing, and this group of men looking like naked ascetics come by. You know, they, they, their hair is all frazzled out, and they're all dirty and naked. And so the king goes off away from the Buddha, and he bows down on one knee, and he says, you know, I'm, paying, I'm paying homage to the Arahants. And he comes back to the Buddha, and he says, um, are those men Arahants? And the Buddha says, you know, it's really hard to tell. <laughs> If you're going to know someone, if you want to know the person's virtue, you have to live with that person for a long time, and you have to be observant. If you want to know a person's fortitude, you have to live with that person through, through hardship, to see how that person bears up under hardship. If you want to know the person's fairness, you have to live with that person and actually have dealings with them, you trade things and that kind of thing. And then fourth, if you want to know the person's wisdom, you have to listen to their conversation. And again, in all cases, you have to be observing yourself. You can't just hope that by soaking around with that person for a long time you're going to soak up what that person is. You have to be very observant about that person. And the king says, well, it's very wise what the Buddha said just now, because those naked ascetics are actually my spies. I sent them over to another country. And they're going home right now and they're going to, you know, they're going to wash off all of the dirt and comb their hair and then hang around with their wives for a bit. So you, you can't tell people just by one glance. So that when you're choosing a teacher, the Buddha says, spend some time with the person. Watch for these qualities, and also watch to notice: Does this person have any show any signs of passion, any signs of aversion, any signs of delusion that would cause this person to claim to know something that he or she did not know? In other words, do they have any anything about them that would give you the give you the implication, or give you the feeling that this person might claim knowledge where they don't have it? And if you sense that in the teacher, okay, that's you don't want that be, to be your teacher. You want to find someone who you feel is going to be honest about what they do and what they don't know. So these are some of the qualities that the Buddha has you use in judging other people. And again, you're not passing judgment on the, the ultimate quality or worth or goodness of that person. You're asking yourself, is this person a good person for me to hang, associate with? <laughs> Is this a good person for me to open my heart to? And you may say, okay, for the time being, this looks like a person that I would like to avoid. Maybe further down, I may notice that the person has changed and the person is more the, more the sort of person I would like to, to associate with. But in the meantime, for the time being, my judgment is telling me, avoid the person. And that's perfectly legitimate. And it's wise. And it's your way of protecting yourself against bad influences. My teacher, in fact, was quite strict about one thing, which was when you have experiences in your meditation, don't discuss them with anybody that you don't really trust. Because if you talk about your meditation to just anybody on the street, they're going to have all sorts of weird ideas and all sorts of weird suggestions. 
And you don't know what you're, what you're gaining from it. I don't mean just anybody on the street, sometimes anybody here in um, IMC. Um, it's not the case that everybody who's sitting here is going to be a wise person to talk to about your meditation. You want to be very careful about who you open your heart to. Another area in which you want to judge other people is for the purpose of who are the people you can help and who are the people you can't help. And this is important also so that the Buddha says your, your basic motivation is goodwill. You want everyone to be happy. But you notice that there are some people that respond to your help and other people don't respond to your help. And it's not wise to keep pouring help at people who don't respond. Because in other words, that, that help you could be giving to someone else who actually would benefit from your help. And here the Buddha doesn't give you any guidelines, except that you've got to notice for yourself. Okay, you, There comes a point where you realize, okay, I've been helping this person and it's not going anywhere. It's a waste of my energy. I wish the person well, but I've got to go and focus my energies other, in other directions. Now that does not mean that you are lacking in goodwill. What it means is you're learning how to use your goodwill wisely. Um, one of the most famous chants for goodwill was one that was taught to the monks after a monk was sitting under a tree and a snake fell on him and bit him and he, the monk died. And then the monks go to tell the Buddha about this and the Buddha says, well, it's obvious that he did not spread goodwill to the four great families of snakes. And then he lists the four great families of snakes and teaches the monks a blessing for the four great families of snakes. And it's one of the most interesting blessings and it starts out, okay, may you all footless beings be happy, may all two-footed beings be happy, may all four-footed beings be happy, may many-footed beings be happy. I have goodwill for footless beings, two-footed beings, four-footed beings, um, many-footed beings. Uh, may all snakes, scorpions, rats, and there's a long list of, you know, uh, <laughs> your friends from nature. Uh, and may they all be happy, may they all meet with good fortune, and now may they all go away. LAUGHTER <laughs> And when you're learning metta in the forest, this is one of the lessons you learn. Um, you know, Miguel was talking about the wonderful shade that was provided by our avocado orchard down there. Um, you didn't tell about the rattlesnakes in the avocado orchard. <laughs> um, and I had an experience one afternoon. I was sitting on a meditation bench, and I was supposed to stop at six <clears throat> and head up for my evening chores. And if you've lived in the avocado orchard long enough, you begin to recognize the different noises that different animals make on the leaves. There's the scurrying sound of the lizards, and then there's that slow sound of the beetles that go over. And then there's the sound of snake, kind of gradually coming through the leaves. And so I heard this sound of snake down below, on the hill below me. And it was gradually coming up the hill. I looked at it. It was one of the largest rattlesnakes I've ever seen. <laughs> and I said, okay, goodwill for the rattlesnake, goodwill for the rattlesnake. <laughs> and I forgot to include, may you go away, because the rattlesnake started <laughs> turned, actually turned, and came toward me. Um, I guess it, I was radiating something nice, but at any rate, um, that's when I decided I can't stay here much longer. <laughs> Although I will tell you a trick about snakes. If you stay perfectly still, they don't see you. So if a snake comes by, you just sit very, very still and they'll go past. They'll think you're a rock and you just go right past them. I've had this happen many times with, um, with cobras in Thailand and rattlesnakes in California. So that's just an aside. Um, <laughs> Well, if you'd like to apply that to today's lesson. Um, <laughs> so essentially, the Buddha is saying that the judging faculty is something that is useful if you use it wisely, as is with so many other things in the practice. Desire, as he said, has its uses. Craving has its uses. 
conceit has, has its uses. Um, there's a very famous sutta where a nun has, de- has developed a real um, liking for an ananda. And so she has word sent out that she's sick. She wants Ananda to come and give her a Dharma lesson. And so she sees Ananda coming from afar. And so she lies down and she covers her head with a robe. And he sits down and he teaches her, okay, um, we practice for the sake of overcoming attachment to the body, but we have to use the body in the practice. We practice for, and he explains how we have to use food in order to keep the body going. We also practice to overcome attachment to food, but we need to use food in the practice. We practice to overcome craving, but we need to use craving in the practice. In other words, there has to be the desire to gain results, otherwise it's not going to work. We practice to overcome conceit, but we need to use conceit in the practice, in the sense that you see that other people have gotten practice, have gotten far in their practice, they're human beings, I'm a human being, they can do it, I can do it. That kind of confidence is useful in the practice. We practice to overcome attachment to sexual attraction. And there's no room for sexual attraction. <laughs> sexual intercourse. No room at all for that in the practice. And so the nun gets up and she bows down to his, at his feet and says, I'm sorry, I was a fool. Um, but the important, les- important lesson here is that there are these qualities of desire, conceit, attachment to food and these things, which we actually have to use in the practice, even though may, we may eventually overcome them. And the same applies to using your powers of judgment. You have to learn how to use them skillfully. Um, One of the great ironies in modern Buddhist teaching is the idea that mindfulness as a practice is a practice of the non-judging mind. Because the Buddha has an analogy for the mindfulness. He says mindfulness is like a gatekeeper. The gatekeeper knows who to let in and who not to let in in order to protect the fortress. And mindfulness here is not so much the quality of awareness, it's more the quality of keeping something in mind. In this particular case, it's remembering what's skillful and what's not, and then learning how to open the path for skillful behavior in your own life and to close the path to unskillful behavior. So mindfulness is the basis for skillful judgment. That's the gatekeeper inside you that says, okay, I know I I would like an extra cupcake this afternoon, but I really can't do that. And then you use your wisdom to tell yourself, you know, you'd be really better off without that cupcake. And the same goes with judging every aspect of your behavior. If you learn how to look at the judge, not so much as the judge up on the judge's bench, passing final judgment, but the judge on the piano bench as you're playing. Learning how to listen to that inner critic, so the inner critic doesn't stop you from playing, but so it points out to you, okay, well, you could play this better, you could do that better, don't do it that way the next time. It's you're judging a work in progress. So in terms of your own behavior, the, the, the inner judge should be trained so that it's Realize this is judging a work in progress. It's supposed, it's there to help you become skillful and not to tie you up. As for judging others, as I said earlier, you're not passing final judgment on them either. You're simply judging, are these the kind of people, one, that I can emulate? If so, they're the kind of people I should associate with. And two, are these the people I can help? If they, are the, if they respond to my help, okay, continue helping them. If they don't respond, then see other, if there's someone else that you can help instead. This way, when you have this attitude towards judgment and judging, you find that you actually benefit, the people around you benefit as well. So instead of being a quality that you want to throw away entirely, you may want to put it to a side. If you find that you have some unskillful judging going on in your head, you say, okay, that's just one member of the committee. I don't have to listen to that member right now. Um, try to listen, try to identify where are the wiser voices in your head and listen to those. So those are some thoughts I had on the topic of judgment. 
And I assume we have some time left over. Are there any questions? Yes, over here in the background. There's a person who I've studied for a long time, and the result of the Buddha's diagnostic is not a pretty one. Mm -hmm. But I must spend a week with this person. It is my mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in that case, remember, um, you don't have to open your heart to your mother. You don't have to open up yourself to her whatever attacks or whatever she might be giving at you. Um, yeah. Again, there's, there's a difference between hanging <laughs> and associating. Okay. Associating is when you're really opening your heart to that person and trying to emulate that person. The people you're hanging around with, sometimes, as I said, especially family is number one, the people that you've got to hang around with. In that case, okay, you you establish boundaries. There's another mic over here. So, in the case of mother, um, <clears throat> there's also the issue of gratitude that mm-hmm. you also mentioned. So, how do you balance uh, gratitude versus uh, wisdom? <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, you see what areas you really can be of help to your mother, and you provide that kind of help. And if your mother is starving, you, you, know, you don't let her starve. You're, you're trying to make sure that she has a comfortable situation in life. But as far as having to obey her desires for what you're going to do with your life, you have to say, no, that's my area. So uh, then what part would appreciation of gratitude come in? Okay, gratitude here is then, you know, you're, you think of all that, that you know, she did for you in raising you. As I say, you know, she taught you how to speak, she taught you how to walk, she did all the basic skills that you need. She introduced the world to you. Um, and so in that case, you, you want to make sure that she's not suffering unduly. And also you want to make sure that um, if there's any opportunity you have to teach her the Dharma. Now, this is very difficult as a child to teach your parent the Dharma. The only way you can do that is by example. And then if she's responsive, okay, continue providing more. If she's not responsive, you say, okay, I've done what I could, and leave it at that. But it is, impo- it is important to learn how to draw boundaries in a case like that. The, uh, the word judging or judgment is fairly loaded in our especially mm-hmm. liberal, especially liberal society. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you mean the same thing uh, as discernment? Well, again, you're using your discernment, but also you're, you have to. You're deciding is you know, what's good and what's not. Who I can hang around with, who I can't, and so you're using your powers of judgment. What I'd like to do is you know sort of revive the good side of the word. It's, it's become one of those words. Oh, a horrible word, judgment. But I mean, you really do have to judge. And when you're clear about, okay, what we don't like about society is where it gets judgmental or it's using the wrong values to judge people. Because if you know, you say, well, we don't want to have any judging at all, they can come back, rack and back at you. How are you going to function in life without using your powers of judgment? And so you want to say, okay, we want to use our judgment skillfully. I mean, this is an old issue um, in, in Buddhist circles. I was Years back, I was invited to give a talk by a, a, someone in the Tibetan tradition on the Four Noble Truths to a group of people. And after I gave my talk, he came up and he said, well, that's, that's the, you know, the dualistic Theravadan approach. <laughs> and I said, you know, well, you know, there are some areas where dualism or dichotomies are useful. If you're, someone's going to operate on your brain, you want them to know your right brain from your left brain. You know? um, um, should I tell the rest of the story? Do you know this one? Okay. But he continued being, making all these snide remarks about du- you know, dualistic Theravadans. 
And it, got, and it really was snide. I mean, his tone of voice was really, it was really obnoxious. And so I found myself pulling back like this. And he jumped about a foot. And that's why I said, well, I thought you were beyond dualities. <laughs> I was never invited back to that group. Um. <laughs> but you do need to, use, and, and be, it's, it's best to be upfront, because if you, if you deny the fact that you're using your powers of judgment, it goes underground. Because then you go to belong to a group like that, and you say, okay, if you're being dualistic, it's bad. And being non-dualistic is good. Um, and so that just means you've redefined what's good and bad without really noticing it. And so I think it's best to bring the issue up, uh, bring it up above ground and say, okay, there are skillful and unskillful ways of judging, and we're going to work on developing the skillful side. Which means using wise standards to begin with, and also understanding we're judging a work in progress. What's a skillful way of letting somebody go who you can't be helpful to anymore? Miss Manners has what she calls the Kafka relationship dissolver. (laughs) 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 Which is that you just stop communicating. Because you can't explain to somebody why you're letting them go. There was that great article in a and the onion, did you ever see that one where the, the woman has a PowerPoint sh- displaying and you know, she's going to show her boyfriend as to why the relationship's not going to work? <laughs> and and, and that's, that's really cruel. You, know. you can't tell the person, look, I've tried helping you and it's not working, so I'm just not going to help you anymore. You just become more distant. Because who knows, maybe after an, a year or so, maybe they're in a position where they, they're more receptive to your help. Um, is there um, evaluation in intuition? Well, part of it's intuition, but part of it you have to learn from from trial and error. In fact, the, the, the Buddhist instructions to his son are precisely that. You look at your intention, as long as your intention looks good, and otherwise it seems it's, it's going to be okay, then you act on it. But then you learn, okay, what seemed to be a good intention is not necessarily going to lead to the right results all the time. So no, notice he's not telling his son, don't make mistakes. He's saying, try not to make mistakes, but if you do make a mistake, this is how you handle it. Come and talk it over. So you can learn from it, so the next time around you don't repeat that mistake. The work in progress idea. But this is, this is, how, I mean, this is how we develop in all aspects of our practice, is we're going to make mistakes. I mean, and, and this is one of the nice things about Buddhism. It was, it was taught by somebody who was not perfect from the, from the get-go. And the Buddha started out just an ordinary person like us. And he knows what it's like to be imperfect. And this is one of the problems of talking to God. God never had an experience being imperfect. <laughs> or at least, at least he doesn't think so. Um. <laughs> Which makes it even harder to talk to. <laughs> but the Buddha recognizes you've got to start where you are, and that's part of what acceptance is, is accepting where you are. But then you're not going to stay right there. His purpose is to have, teach you the skills that you're going to need in order to become more skillful in what you do and you say and you think. Okay. So it's this willingness to learn that's an important part of the practice. Um, 
in other contexts I've talked about you know, the sense of self that you need in order to practice, and that's probably the best way to define it is the, the self that says, okay, I'm always willing to learn, I always want to do the skillful thing, but if I make a mistake, I want to admit it, I want to learn from it. That can get you through all, such, all sorts of situations. Uh, as I'm listening, it sounds like what you're telling us is how to breathe uh, forgiveness into judgment. Right, right. And yeah. I'm wondering, how does that apply when uh, you've been lied to? Okay. Okay, again, when you've been lied to. The question is, is this a person that you have to continue you know, associating with? Okay. okay, well, just notice that. Okay, this person has lied to me. Um, I have to be careful around this person. And I hope that maybe someday this person will change his or her ways. But this is a person I have to be very careful about. That's perfectly legitimate. I mean, you need that as protection. It may not be understanding something. Um, the people that I know and my friends, they may have conviction, they may have generosity, they may have wisdom, they may be virtuous, but they're not that way all the time. I'm not that way all the time. And I, I guess I don't know um, are they trying? Are they trying? Are they trying to be that way? Uh, they probably like me. I mean, uh -huh. They're probably trying sometimes. And uh -huh. Sometimes they're unconscious. Or, or okay, well, emulate the good side of them, and then watch. You know, for the bad side, just okay. Recognize that as something. I don't want to. I don't want to go along with them. But I guess the idea is associating with them <laughs> because I feel like if I were if I were to hold this standard. Uh, I wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, it means that you would have to start looking for better friends. <laughs> and as far as, as, as the friends who are you know, sometimes good and sometimes not, um, those are the people you can't fully trust. And so again, there's, there'll have to be a certain amount of caution around them. But I must admit, I mean, this kind of thinking was what drove me into a monastery. <laughs> what was that? I heard, I heard a comment over there. I just to get the out. Okay. <laughs> but again, it's, are these the people that you really open your heart to? Or are they the people that you have a good time with and you associate with and you can you know, sort of feel good being around the people? But there, was, there should be some part of you that you hold in reserve. I think yesterday yes. you um, gave a definition of judgmental, mm -hmm. was when you judge without enough information. Is that true? Right. You judge without you enough information and you're using the wrong standards. Yeah. I, thought that, I didn't think you said that today, but it seems like an interesting adjunct to what yeah. you're talking about today. And this would revive the word judgment if we can separate it from judgmental. Because right. yeah. for me, it's been interesting. In the past several months, I've been working on a book about how the Buddha approaches questions. If you were here Monday night, you know, they were talking about the four types of questions, the questions that he would give a categorical, you know, straight yes-no answer to, the questions he would give an analytical answer to, the questions he would cross-question you before he answered, and then the questions that he would put aside. Now, the issues of judging comes under the analytical answers. Because when he gives an analytical answer, it means okay, you've given him a question and the way you've analyzed the problem is either incomplete, or maybe it's incomplete or it's using the wrong standards. And so he's going to give you a different set of standards for, for applying the judgment. And nine times out of ten, people were judging other people by the wrong standards. 
you know, what standard question was, is it better to be a monastic or is it better to be a lay person? Now you would think the Buddha would say, you know, monastic 100% of the way. No, he didn't. He said, look at how the individual is practicing. Just because somebody's wearing robes doesn't mean you can trust them. Somebody, because if someone's a layperson, it doesn't mean that they don't know what they're doing. So you look at the actual way they behave. And then, of course, there was the whole issue of judging people as to whether they were Brahmins or noble warriors or sort of racist issues back in those times. And the Buddha said, that has nothing to do with anything at all. You can't use that to judge. So it's, it's a matter of judging without enough information and using the wrong standards. That's what ju being judgmental is. Question here. So, um, thank you for your comments. And um, I guess one thing is just um, not sitting so well with me. And um, I understand your point about the girlfriend with the PowerPoint. <laughs> but I also um, I have trouble with the idea of you just distance from someone if they've hurt you or betrayed you or, um, you know, breached a confidence. And it seems like uh, nothing ever happens then in relationship. No growth ever occurs. Okay, well, that, that's, an, that's a case where you have to decide whether it's going to be forgiveness or reconciliation. And reconciliation is when you actually sit down and say, okay, you hurt me. I felt betrayed. Um, and I would like an apology. Or I'd like to sort out, maybe there was a misunderstanding. Let's, I'd like to sort it out. And this is the two-way process. And it's, it's complicated. Um, but it's, I mean, if, you, if it's a friendship that you actually feel is overall as a worthwhile friendship, and that it can be brought back together again, by all means, make every effort to do the reconciliation. But you have to recognize that reconciliation can happen only when, you know, if one side admits, okay, or at least one side admits, okay, I did this wrong. Or maybe both sides did something wrong, you've got to hash that out. But you sort of reaffirm the fact that you have values in common and you conduct the reconciliation in a way that you, both of you trust, okay, that the other person really does sincerely want to maintain this, this relationship. Um, and that you can continue working on those shared values. So that, that's reconciliation. I mean, years back, there was a, I don't know if you saw it, the issue that Inquiring Mind had in reconciliation. But there was, was one article about this one woman who was claiming that you know, she had a sister who hadn't talked to the family for 20 years and she felt that she was owed a reconciliation. And there was nothing in the article that showed any indication, well, wait a minute, why did this other sister not talk to you for 20 years? Well, maybe there's some issue that she has. And you're not willing to open, you know, to accept the fact that maybe there's something you've got to. You've got to sit down and talk this over. So I mean, if you can talk it over and you can patch up the relationship, then then, then by all means try to do that in a way that shows that the relationship is ongoing and that you do have shared values. But there are times when it, you know, one side is just not going to admit that they did something wrong. You realize, okay, I don't. Our, our values are not shared. That's that's an that's that's an area where you would want to bring forgiveness, but also you say, okay, that's when you have to pull back. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you for bringing that up. Thank you. Mm -hmm. okay. Time to stop. Okay. 
Well, thank you for your attention.